I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. I want to welcome our audience to another episode of the Design to Heal podcast. I am your average Jeff here with Dr. Ben Rawl. Buddy. Hey, man. How are you? Man, I'm good. I'm, I'm excited for today because we've got um, a repeat guest. He's, and well, he's like, he's a, he's a record holder. He's on like the wall of, of fame, whether he likes it or not. He uh, He's actually, this is his third time on the show, but... You know, when you find somebody that, um, especially in confusing times where it's hard to know, am I getting good information? You know, what can I trust? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you find a, a person like Gerald uh, Posner, who's our guest today. I know so many listeners will be excited to know that. Wrote the book Pharma. That's how I really was introduced to him and then just been following his work. And unfortunately, the, the opioid crisis is far from over. Um, he's been busy as ever, even just continuing his work in this. And he's going to update us on some of that. And then also we want to talk about uh, fentanyl today. If you know, as these last couple of years through the COVID world, you know, we've seen overdoses, uh, unbelievable numbers uh, that we've seen through with some of this addiction and what happened to people when they were locked down. But there's a lot to that story. So we desire always to bring in experts and people that really are uh, do their due diligence and are thrown. So we're so excited to have Gerald back on today. Thanks for, it's been a few weeks in the, in the making, not, not more than that, a few months because you've been so busy, but thanks for, for getting on the show again, bud. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for being patient and finally arranging, uh, you know, for this interview. And uh, it's always great to talk to you because, you know, you, you're sort of a dash of common sense in a, uh, in an area in which there's, you know, people sort of take sides and they just want to, uh, you know, say what they think is true. And you're looking for information and uh, facts are important. So, you know, yeah. helps you realize. That. Well, tell us what you've been up to. Um, I, I know some of it maybe is you can't talk about yet, but just give us an update on your projects and where you've been, what you've been doing. Love to hear it. Yeah. So, I mean, two things. I, I've been, uh, the good news and your listeners will be among the first to know because it hasn't even been announced yet by uh, the producer or by Showtime. But the book Pharma, which is sort of this, as you know, history, investigative history of the uh, drug industry, uh, was taken by a producer, R.J. Cutler. He's done some great award-winning documentaries over time, from The War Room to, you know, The World According to Dick Cheney uh, mm. to films on Marlon Brando. And he has been able to arrange with Showtime, uh, the SHO, a six-hour documentary that will air next year. So six wow. one-hour episodes on pharma. They're sort of going to approach it by pills, you know, antibiotics, uh, contraceptive pill, uh, wow. COVID. And um, it should be great. He's, he does great hard-hitting docs. And I've been up to New York a couple of times to film some of it, uh, two trips so far, and they're probably almost halfway through a rough cut. So that'll be next year. And the other thing is, um, in addition to continuing on following the opioid crisis, I've just been researching in the background for months and months now. I don't know if it will be a documentary or a book or if anybody, any publishers interested, but what I call the business of cancer. Wow. Uh, my wife, my wife, Trisha works with me and is also an author, had breast cancer a year ago, sort of put us into the system. She's fine and, and mm. okay now. And look at the, it can save your life occasionally, but it's also a machine. And, uh, 
the politics of uh, what has made cancer care an industrial empire uh, has me uh, fascinated. So I'm doing a lot of uh, research on that. Gerald, first of all, we're thankful to hear about your wife doing well. But do you do you just lay in bed at night and think to yourself, okay, what lion do I want to poke here? What bear do I want to poke? <laughs> what, what can I do? Do you have? Are you a, you know you like uh, you know the, the the tough topics? I know you've you've always not been afraid to go into those areas, and I'm so thankful because we need. We need people to do it. Um, sorry that you had to experience it firsthand there uh, with your wife, but gosh, that's going to be a powerful, a powerful piece. Looking forward Ger- to that. Gerald, by the way, Ben's asking that question because if you do do that thing of poking the bear, he just thought you could call him at night when he's doing the same thing too. Okay, yeah, so. that's, I get it too because that's part of the fun of doing this is, and it's very difficult. So you'll both understand this completely. Not only do you think of, okay, what big topic do I want to get into next, but there are a lot of good ones. And so mm-hmm. it's not as though there's just one. So there are a few. And then you have to, and, and the cancer one came to us because it was a personal experience as her delved into it and then started to discover things that we were being told that I didn't think were quite right. Yeah. So, you know, you do more research. But you also have to find an outlet for it. So, you know, you can end up doing your the results of your research and it out on uh, you know uh, just on the web or on a blog but you need to really get a publisher i need to get a documentary filmmaker or somebody Mm. who has the power to get it before a lot of eyes and Mm. and, you know so there's always an extra hurdle i could be fascinated by it and Mm. turned on and think it's a great subject but i need them to convince one more you know person in publishing or whatever else that yeah, it's really a good story to put out we had a recently we had a guest on robert whitaker who you may know has done a lot of investigative work into psychiatry and wrote a book called the anatomy right. of illness and he he had made a, a similar statement he said why he's stayed on this for so long he said is because it's still is very difficult to get it in front of the people that need it, right? And so he's almost said, yeah. you know, reluctantly, he has to stay in this, not reluctantly, but and yeah, until it becomes kind of mainstream or public knowledge or maybe fits into informed consent. Unfortunately, I don't think there's any of us on this line that, that are listening that haven't probably been touched by cancer. And I think anybody that's gone into that experience with a little bit of their eyes open and been willing to ask just a couple questions is often pretty concerned slash disappointed slash what is happening here. So uh, I know that's not the topic of today, but can't wait. We'll have you back on with, with that one as well. We'll be uh, uh, hoping for a great a great partner to help get that information in front of people. And, and, and by the way, uh, you know, and, and this leads into what we were going to talk about in terms of opioid and fentanyl and all. One of the things that I find frustrating is that in terms of the mainstream press, the big press, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, New Yorker, uh, you know, uh, the Atlantic and, and book publishers as well as, as well as uh, cable news, they seem to be uh, saturated with opioids, meaning that if you go to them with a story and you say, Gee, I have something a little bit different here, mm-hmm. they say, oh, opioids, we've done it. We're covering the number of overdeath, uh, you know, yeah. overdoses. Uh, we know this is a big flood. It's an insurmountable problem. But the, the problem there isn't that it's not on the news radar, but it's but they don't think there's anything new in it. And as a result, it's not getting covered except for the occasional stories about, you know, some seizure of a hundred pounds of fentanyl or the new overdose numbers. And that's unfortunate because it creates the same problem as if they, they weren't interested at all. They're interested, but they just don't see how the story is different and it's, the complexities of it, so they're not involved in. Well, let's talk about it because um, there is 
um, and I know you're you're incredibly intimate with the subject matter here. And there, fentanyl has has seemed to spike up in at least popular news. You're seeing that name more. I'm seeing more fentanyl language than I am opioid, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There was a recent report uh, earlier this year, Gerald, I think not too long ago, where they released, uh, I believe it was last year's overdose statistics, if I'm remembering right, 107,000 overdoses. Um, And even in that language, I think we can get... uh, Let me state my little case, Gerald, and then, you know, pick it apart or, or... what I'm always frustrated with is we have these drugs, and I think there is a couple of parts to this, but we have these drugs that have been manufactured and promoted by pharmaceutical companies. Now, a lot of times, especially with fentanyl, right, it's this, it's the narrative seems to be, you know, hey, it's these, um, it's bad guys uh, bringing the drugs across the border. And I can appreciate that. And I, and I, and I'm not denying that, but let also, let's also remember that this is a, these are drugs that are manufactured by pharmaceutical companies. The fact that these things, exist, the fact that these things are put in the hands of people, the fact that these things have the effects that they have. And then, you know, whether it's a a girl picking one up at the playground, then is overdosed by touching it. Or I've heard of police who've done, you know, uh, arrests and such that are just breathing it in or go into the the room and they're exposed to it and it kills them. I think like to your point or not to your point, but a question to you, Gerald is, um, we, we, there's a, the, 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 how bad these things are, I think, is often lost, right? When you have something like fentanyl, right. which is 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine, we all think of morphine. We think of hospice care, right? I mean, I often do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and yet right. we have something right. that people, you know, kiddos are partying with or people are getting prescribed. Like, yeah. do you mind just for our listeners and for my sake, Gerald, kind of state your case on the crisis and I'm more than happy to go down the different route than just, hey, kids are buying drugs from Mexico and we're all, yeah, you know. Yeah, no. yeah so what do you got well, for think, us there? I think, I think, it's, I think it's, it's, so it's a combination. You're right. You know, when you mentioned the 107,000 deaths, a record in terms of uh, overdose deaths, um, it's the DEA and CDC together sort of work on what they call a stat. They try to pull out what they think are the synthetic deaths within that. It's hard to know because often autopsies will show multiple drugs involved, right, and alcohol and everything else. But they think about 64,000, well over half of those are synthetics, uh, most of those fentanyl. Uh, some could be tramadol, another type of uh, synthetic uh, painkiller. But the, uh, fentanyl is now accounting for more than half of those deaths. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it, it originally and still is a legal drug. I mean, it was invented in the, in the 1960s for anyone that is old enough to remember. It was called sublimase when it first came out. It was an intravenous anesthetic. Um, and then as it was used by doctors, they realized it wasn't only powerful enough, like you said, 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine to be an anesthetic, but in very, very small doses could also be used for chronic end-of-life terminal cancer pain. Well, you know, for anybody that's followed the opioid the, uh, OxyContin uh, crisis, they will realize that the predecessor to OxyContin, uh, called MS-Contin, which was a long-delivery morphine pill, was for end-of-life terminal cancer pain. And, you know, then OxyContin came out, it was for that, and then started to get used for everything from back pain on. And that's what happened with fentanyl. It got more widely used. Uh, you know, they, they pushed fentanyl as in, or in oral lozenges. Uh, they had it in uh, what, uh, what essentially, those were like fentanyl lollipops by a company called Actique. They, uh, fentanyl was available as uh, these effervescent tablets. Uh, there was available sublingual tablets, uh, sprays, uh, nasal sprays, and even patches. as patches. Yeah, I was gonna say, right? yeah, patches. And, yeah, yeah. And, and the patches, 
interestingly enough, became subject to once an item is a powerful, you know, causes addiction and also pleasure or euphoria for those who use it or those who get addicted to it, uh, they look for ways to divert it. So it starts to get diverted to the to the illegal market. And the patches were particularly po- uh, popular because even though the patches were supposed to be used for three days, um, the people, abusers were looking for the used patches that were thrown out because they were able to get a large percentage of fentanyl still remained in those patches. They would freeze them, cut them into pieces, place them under their tongue or put them into their cheek cavity to delay absorptions. You know, so it was still being used. Now, the thing is, that type of diversion leads to everything we saw with OxyContin. It's theft, it's fraudulent prescriptions, it's illegal, illegal distribution by you know physicians, pharmacists, patients, you name it. The Interesting part of this to me is that although fentanyl deaths keep going up in terms of the percentage of overdose deaths, now over half, the legal prescriptions have gone down. And that'll tell you the illegal market is growing. So what I mean by that is in 2015 was the high point. There are like six and a half million fentanyl prescriptions in the U.S. And then in 2016, the next year, it drops down to uh, like uh, 5.9 million. So it drops down like 700,000. And then in 2017, it drops to 5 million. And 2018, it's at 4 million, 3.9 million. So it's cut by 30%. So the number of legal prescriptions, smaller. The number of seizures by the DEA growing every year. So in 2021, nearly 12,000 pounds, which is more than a thousand times more than the legal amount being prescribed. So a ton of stuff coming in or being manufactured illegally. And just two to three milligrams is enough to kill an average person. So, you know, you, you, those who are good at the bath know that they're like 450,000 milligrams in a pound. So you're talking, uh, you know, in just what the was seized last year, the 13, 12 to 13,000 pounds, it's enough to kill every American seven times over if you just distribute. So there's a lot of fentanyl flooding the market. So a couple just quick questions on this, because I think some people ask, like, where where is it? Is it easy to make this? I mean, are these... Um, you know, places that are manufacturing this. Do we know much about that? I don't want to get on too much of a tangent. I'm just a cur- just curious. Like, yeah. is it is it you know pharmaceutical labs in other countries? Do they have is there's there hacks to this? Is it is it fentanyl? What do you mind? Do you know? Yeah, they're not pharmaceutical labs. So what's interesting is part of the problem is for the fentanyl that's not that's not legal that isn't diverted. Let's say from a legal prescription yeah. that's sold on the street. It's made usually in some type of clandestine lab, and it's. Most of the time, in what the the DEA finds, it's less pure than the pharmaceutical version, but still very powerful. So instead of being maybe a hundred times more powerful than morphine, maybe it's thirty times more powerful. That's why its effect on the on, on each person can be unpredictable. Um, and what happens is the uh, so in t- two thousand five to two thousand seven, uh, seventeen years ago, essentially, there was an outbreak of fentanyl overdoses in the U.S. and you know, we forget about these like clusters and there are over a thousand non-pharmaceutical fentanyl related deaths in like six or seven states. So there's a big crackdown by the government. The government's always reactive to these things, as you know, and they cracked down DA and the feds cracked down and said, okay, we've got this problem. So we're going to um, control the precursor chemicals. And they passed all these new rules okay. so that it was harder to get the chemicals to make it. And as a result, what they did is they moved the precursor market overseas. Okay. <laughs> and that primarily went to China. So a lot of the precursor chemicals come in from China 
and they are then mixed in Canada or Mexico or in the U.S. and then brought into the U.S. And uh, if if anybody wants to, all they have to do is just Google later fentanyl and look at news, and you'll see seizure after seizure after seizure of 20 pounds here, 15 pounds here, 114 pounds on July 1st in Colorado. Those are amazing amounts. They're big, big doses, and those are being made just in some clandestine lab where individuals who make them are wearing essentially hazmat suits and are completely covered and protected because this isn't something like uh, mixing cocaine where if you in, you know inhale a little bit of the dust, you're all right. This can kill you. So... Uh, you know, the people, it's not just being made in at home by somebody reading about it on TikTok. Gerald, uh, you know, my role in the show, as you know, is to ask sort of like the average Joe questions. And, you know, right. when I look at this topic, in fact, one of the reasons that, you know, we kind of reached out to you again, obviously love having you on, but knew that your expertise would be most suitable for, you know, a topic like this. But, you know, I've seen these articles out there and just as a, you know, as a, as a dad, as a man of, you know, the kids that are at a, a high school party, a college party or something like that, and somehow coming into interaction with fentanyl and, you know, almost near instant death. I've got um, family and law enforcement, you know, talking about, uh, you know, their interactions and what they have to do and the you know, precautions they have to take. I mean, when I hear this thing, it sounds to me like it's a weapon of mass destruction. Like I think anthrax, you know, I think of, 20 years ago, people, you know, living in fear of getting an envelope in the mail that had something, you know, that had powder in it or anthrax or whatever it was and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I, is that a wrong understanding of this? How do you view that? How would you speak to to that idea? Because I think there's a lot of us out there that don't know. I, I would know what the heck this stuff, stuff is if you showed it to me and certainly wouldn't yeah. know what it does. And, you know, all I hear is, you know, 30 to 100 times more powerful than morphine. And I'm going, well, morphine is pretty darn powerful. So whatever this stuff is, sounds pretty bad. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because essentially it is just a, a white, off-white powder that looks exactly like a talcum powder if you were looking at it from a distance, or it looks like heroin if you're looking for heroin. So that it, 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 it's, it can be, it's being found mixed in, by the way, and the reason every parent should be concerned, it's being found and mixed in to other street drugs. So if a uh, somebody buys what they think is cocaine or methamphetamine or even a club uh, drug uh, like uh, uh, Molly, as, it, as it's called, ecstasy or that, if it has some fentanyl in it to give it an extra kick, that is where the problems come in. They've even found it in, in illegal uh, cannabis uh, lots uh, picked up in California and in Colorado. So it's a problem. When you say you know, weapon of mass destruction, Boy, you're marshalling what uh, was said just just yesterday or maybe a day ago by the attorney general here in Florida, where I live. Uh, the, this Ashley Moody sent a letter to President Biden urging him to classify illegal fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. And the reason for that isn't just calling it a name. You know, you hear that and you think, OK, that's just like. Uh, some clever political byline or actually, something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But that classification would allow the federal government to marshal more resources and agencies against it, including the Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security. So, you know, it's there's no question from the CDC that it's driving the ongoing opioid crisis. It's replaced a lot of what had been the oxycontin in that, and. Um, it's hard to just keep putting your finger into, you know, like whack-a-mole. You, mm. you knock one part down, you catch 100 pounds here, and, and that's the end of it. So I, I do think that the government at some point, state governments and the federal government, are going to have to figure out a better response to this because it can't just be manufactured. Can I ask you something, so, Gerald? So I'm wondering this, um, a couple things. One is 
I'm hearing those numbers, and you said just the numbers that they've that they've caught. I think the twelve thousand or whatever you said enough to kill every American, and we have to believe just on all other numbers we ever hear that is a fraction of what comes in to the government. Right. I mean, like they don't catch everything right. that comes across. So you just have to imagine the multiples that actually do make it here, which is devastating to think about. Right when I hear that, I just think the demand. Right, they don't bring it and it just sits on a shelf. It's being used, it's being sold, it's being ingested, which is really heartbreaking and maybe not your area of expertise, but we've seen, you know, a nation and I'm going to and that's what I was going to ask you. You know, what part of this abuse um, and what I mean by that is just the, the usage and the overusage in Amer- is, 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 is unique to America because I know and you wrote the book Pharma I know you're intimate to these details you know we use a lot of drugs legal and illegal in the United States and so I'm curious you know us being about a five percent of the population in the world how much of the fentanyl do we because here's what I think about sometimes Gerald is People think, well, hey, this maybe there's a place for some of this, right? Like you said, end-of-life care, cancer, chronic pain, this type of thing. But it isn't as if it's the only thing. You know, there's other nations that somehow are surviving without fentanyl. There's other nations that, right. you know, don't have to use all the opioids that we use. And I'm glad to hear that the prescriptions are down. But we're a nation, and I'm, a, I'm this is a, a paraphrase here, maybe an overgeneralization, Gerald, but we're a nation that reaches for a pill bottle. Right. It mm-hmm. seems like and yeah, I, everybody absolutely. going through absolutely. COVID and there was very real stresses of that and ver- for everybody affected differently. But obviously we saw a lot of dep- we're still I think I think we're actually just starting to see how bad this can get the aftermath of this. Do you, can you speak to two of those points? Number one, can you just speak to how we line up as a nation to the rest of the world? And then if you don't mind giving us your perspective on just the I'm going to call it the medicalization of America and maybe your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, there, there's no doubt that we use more pharmaceuticals per capita than just about any nation on the planet. Uh, the uh, We use a lot of drugs to treat every type of condition, and there, it seems like more and more conditions are medicalized all the time, you know, so whether it's... Uh, PTSD or whether it's anxiety or, you know, a different type of pediatric depression or whatever, you know, something's listed in a psychiatric manual and now insurance will pay for it. So it's medicalized. Uh, there are, uh, you have an opioid crisis. What do you do? You come up with um, yeah. opioid antagonists to treat somebody if they have an overdose, like in Loxone. So, you know, there's a market for everything. There's a market. You're, uh, you're using opioids for chronic pain or end of life uh, cancer care and the opioids have made you constipated there's a prescription to take care of that so you know the drug companies come up with a, a pill for everything and you're you're absolutely right that the oxycodone the opioid crisis caused by le- legal prescription drugs was greater in the united states and bigger than elsewhere because other countries in europe and canada and that where they were selling oxycontin did not have the problem with pill mills and the over prescriptions they're more tightly regulated and the same here with fentanyl even the illegal fentanyl that's coming in there's a larger market for mixing it with legitimate you know what i call still illegal drugs but drugs that people think they're buying that aren't fentanyl and also drugs being made to look like a xanax or something else sure. that is um that's available so that you somebody goes on the internet, they buy what they think is Xanax because they need to get to sleep or they're buying an Adderall because they need to study for final exams and it's mixed with fentanyl and that's causing a problem. And the size of it, for instance, in Florida, in 2020, the last full year for which I had stats, there were 6,100 people killed by opioids. 
5,300 of those uh, uh, were uh, fentanyl. That's an amazing stat. It's become the entire market. And you look at other countries, their, their overdose numbers per capita are smaller and the amount of fentanyl is smaller. Now, in 2017, so coming on five years ago this November, uh, my wife and I had gone to Terre Haute, Indiana to give a talk at a Holocaust uh, center there uh, that's in Terre Haute. Um, started by a camp survivor, and we went to Walmart the night before we gave the talk. That was the first time we ever saw a, a public place like a Walmart that had a sign and wipes out, not for COVID, to wipe the handle of the shopping carts, but because they had such a fentanyl problem in the area, they suggested that you wiped the handles of the shopping carts before using them in wow. case you turned out to be very f- sensitive to fentanyl, it could be an issue for you. And here in Florida, we had a group of uh, cadets from West Point who were visiting and had rented a home a few months ago. Uh, they called 911. Some of them at the party had overdosed on fentanyl-laced drugs, and two of them went into the ER trying to give a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to those who had actually already gone into what looked like a coma state because they picked up enough fentanyl from that to put them into danger. So, you know, it, it, it is a, a a crisis at every level, but you're absolutely right. It's worse here in America because in part we have a larger illegal, illicit and legal um, drug, um, you know, a fascination. Gerald, to, to sort of dovetail off my question earlier, you know, you say this this contact that like the cadets and everything. I mean, this is skin contact essentially. Um, first of all, is that correct? I mean, what are the ways that people are encountering this stuff? Because I think that's what that's what kind of makes it so scary. Is it's there's a lot of vague reporting on it, and you're not really hearing some of the de- the uh, the details out there. And different from other drug overdoses for say more like illicit drugs. You know, cocaine doesn't just sneak into my nose. You know, like the, uh, you know, um, heroin doesn't just just sneak into a needle and then, you know, magically end up in my veins or something like that. Like you have to actually go out and commit an action to to encounter these kinds of drugs. It sounds like fentanyl is a completely different animal. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Uh, So, you know, what's interesting is, uh, I mean, you you normally have to have some people have a very high sensitivity to it. It's the same thing. Look, some people are allergic to penicillin, right? Penicillin is a life saving drug. If you have a bacterial infection, you've cut yourself, it becomes an infection. It can help save your life. But if you're allergic to it, which you don't know until you take penicillin, it can become a life-threatening drug. So if you have a sensitivity to fentanyl and you're not sure about it, it's the, uh, just like some people have um, an allergic response to morphine or any opioid at all, you would be in problems. But there's no doubt that over the last five to six years, a whole series of new rules have been put in for first responders because based just on fentanyl because if they encounter fentanyl they're at greater risk of overdose by touching it at times or inhaling it which is the biggest problem um and it's the inhalation of it which can cause difficulty because fentanyl sort of works on the brain the same way that heroin does it sort of binds to the MU opioid receptor in the brain. But with fentanyl, it gets there super fast. It's an almost instantaneous byproduct. Uh, the And it hugs the receptor so tightly that a tiny amount's enough to start sort of what I call this molecular chain reaction of events that can instigate uh, serious opioid effects. Even if you give an opioid antagonist like a naloxone to, uh, to counter those effects, you sometimes have to use more than you would otherwise use to be able to break the the, the hold on it. Uh, uh, naloxone easily knocks morphine off the receptor, but doesn't do so to fentanyl. So fentanyl 
poses some problems, not so much touch. We've now learned, unless you have a cut or something in your hand, but more the inhalation of it. Gerald, let me thank you for, for giving us some, some details on that. Let me ask you a question, and this is going to be a little, I'm throwing a little bit of a curveball here, so if you're not comfortable answering it, I understand. But there's part of me, call it, call it conspiracy, I don't know, right? That it's, I'm, I'm thinking back to the, the, the crack kind of time back in the 80s, right? And forgive me for just oversimplifying this, right? Where it seems like the populations of people that are affected by this the most, seemingly, and I'm, I'm making some generalizations here, it just seems like, man, there's a lot it, 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 it begs the question sometimes to me, Gerald, of just how easily this is getting to so many people and so many people are being hurt and or killed by that. To have 100,000 plus people in our country die at some version of the hands of this is, I mean, Gerald, that puts it into one of the top killers in our nation. I mean, if you know, right, if you just, however you want to slice those numbers, that's more than HIV, that's more than breast cancer, that's, you know, you just probably went through a whole bunch of cancer stats, right? And so <clears throat> part of me, is there is there any dark side to this, Gerald, that you've uncovered? And again, if this is just not something you've gone into, I appreciate that. But there's just part of me that's uncomfortable where I go, man, is there other, what's been the response of pharma to this? What's the response? Because it seems like it's allowed to go more than it should be because it's affecting a population of people sometimes that maybe do get get marginalized. And I'm not maybe asking the question the right way, but do you yeah, mind? No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. I, I get it. I, I do think that with crack, it certainly hit um, inner city uh, black communities, uh, people of color more than anybody else in the beginning. That's without question. The opioids, I think when opioids came out and was OxyContin, it, it hit primarily poor uh, working class whites in Appalachia. That's where they were marketing to. So, you know, uh, it, 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 was, it, it wasn't people on uh, Wall Street going to work at uh, Goldman yeah. Sachs initially, although eventually uh, uh, opioids became an equal opportunity um, addiction uh, across the realm. You just got to prescribe to you in a different way. With, with uh, fentanyl, it seems to be that it also is an equal opportunity drug to affect um, you know everybody from college students to inner city uh, residents to uh, working class uh, people to people who are thinking they're buying high quality cocaine on Park Avenue in New York City and end up with a fentanyl laced product. Uh, so it's across the board, but. Pharma's response is nothing except to come out with maybe a better opioid antagonist that you might be able to give to get over an overdose. Uh, the, the problem with trying to enforce it will really be left up to the federal government. And that way, no means that you were in real problems because the war on drugs never has worked very, very well, no matter how much money we throw at it. And what makes fentanyl different, I believe, besides its potency than what we had with crack or in the beginning with OxyContin, is although it requires a prescription if you do it legally, right, you, you want to get a fentanyl patch because you have chronic pain that is otherwise keeping you disabled, um, for those who want to buy it illegally, it's available today on social media in, in, in places that are closed up once they are discovered. It's available on the internet for delivery. Uh, a number, you know, the dealers no longer just standing on a street corner um, as they were, you know, if you, you watch... Um, 
you know, a film about how crack was sold. Uh, let's say, you know, it, it, you had a street corner on every other, you know, there was a dealer on every other street corner uh, somewhere in The Wire, uh, which is a great uh, TV series. That doesn't exist that much anymore. It's not happening here. Um, the deliveries are being made in a different way. And I think that social media and the Internet and with many of these locations being located offshore just makes it tougher to stop the amount of fentanyl and the quantity of it. So in some ways, my research on it leaves me without an answer. I don't have, if you say to me, what's the easy answer? What should we do? Yeah, that's my question I have sitting in front of me. I go, I'm just listening. And actually, you kind of of blew my mind there. I didn't think about a a social media uh, kind of component to to drug dealing, if you will, nowadays. It made me think of a corollary. I've talked to people that have uh, talked to me about like... um, pornography. And, and I just remember like, again, I'm just story, but you know, when you're young back in the day, it was, you know, you found some, you know, magazine or something like this right now. Now it's been placed in the hands of almost anybody with a phone and the accessibility to it just made it explode as far as, you know, the industry and things like that. Now, now never, never thinking about that from, from, from a drugs uh, perspective and things like that, that is, that's wild, Gerald. There's a Journal of Medical Internet Research, and this medical internet research, I think they did their story in 2021. They had looked at a quarter billion listings from 10 anonymous sort of dark web online marketplaces, uh, and they ended up finding 28,000 opioid um, product listings. They're not doing something very, uh, you know, sophisticated. Wow. And, you know, 13,000 of those are promotional reviews that are available for, you know, uh, ordering online. So... That is, you know, you think that if you give your child a telephone, they have in their hand uh, an amazing device for Internet research and for staying in contact with friends and everything else. And they also have a device that can lead them into the world of violence or pornography and now can lead them into the world of obtaining drugs. And I don't mean just fentanyl. Obviously, you can buy cocaine or other drugs also online. But now with fentanyl, we're talking about something that can kill you. And I don't mean to minimize the other drugs that are available and say, oh, you can just buy cocaine, not so bad. But fentanyl is, uh, you know, potentially uh, a killer. And I don't think that uh, that's as easily closed up. Ben, to your point earlier, though, you said that, you know, given that this was manufactured and created by pharma, you know, different than some of these illicit drugs and everything, I, I just have to ask the question. And I love, Ben, the example that you gave about, like, the, the porn industry. Like, yeah. let's just go parallel here for a second. It's just very difficult for me. I mean, some of this is a moral conviction, but also just empirically when we look at data, like it is hard for me to believe that anybody can make an argument that there is um, an appropriate use or place for porn. Like in other words, like this, this benefits society, you know, it's an industry that actors have to be tested on a regular basis for HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it certainly destroy families, lives, and everything, addictions that are created out of it. So I often use that. Maybe it's an oversimplified way of thinking, but I often use that same sort of standard when I think of anything. And I go, like you said earlier, Ben, you were saying, like, is, is fentanyl not the only thing that can be used for something like this? Like, I'm asking the question, why the heck is this stuff even being manufactured well, anymore? But yeah, I, yeah, I would yeah. then ask the question, yeah. you know, because, again, I don't know what's in it. Are, are we at a place now where it's like where it's like meth or something where there's no way of stopping this now? Well, what, I'm wondering, what I'm wondering, too, to maybe, Gerald, as we kind of wind down here in this show, I'm sitting there thinking, and I, I think I alluded to this earlier, um, but I just want to press in on it a little bit more. And I think part of Jeff's question is um, – you know, I, I'm going to think of another, and we're just talking about kind of heavy topics here today. You think about something like um, 
trafficking of children. Again, forgive me for the heavy topic here or, you know, sex trafficking or something like this. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember somebody talking about it and said, listen, you know, yeah, we need to crack down on all the, the, you know, the ways this goes, but as long as there remains a market yeah, for it, yeah. um, there's going to be people that are going to take that. And I, Gerald, I just wonder when you look at our, at our world and especially when we get stressed, right? When we get, and again, I'm oversimplifying here, but right. When we get squeezed, when we're, there's so much out there. I, I maybe even what you recently went through with your wife, you're like, Oh my goodness, right? What is happening? And, and you can see, we reach for, and we have different things we reach for depending on our, our, our whatever. And, um, there just seems to be, the world seems to be screaming Gerald for like, Oh my goodness, I need relief. I need something to help me get through. And so we reach now, sure. Sometimes we reach for something. We didn't know what it was and it ends up being something that kills us. And that's devastating. But I think the underlying point is we're still reaching for something to try to fix us, try to, you know, cover it, mask it, numb us, whatever the word is. And I feel like we're marketed that philosophy, Gerald, where it's almost become part of culture where that seems like a really reasonable approach. And again, I know this isn't your full wheelhouse, but do you just have thoughts on that as you've dove into this industry? Yeah. And just but some, I yeah, think, go ahead. But, but I think it's also partly human nature, what I, especially with drugs that have a beneficial purpose for some legitimate reason. And remember, fentanyl does as an anesthetic work. Uh, in severe case of pain, end-of-life terminal uh, cancer and that, for people who are really miserable but they're in hospice, it does work. And so does OxyContin, but all of this abuse makes it more difficult for them to even get it. You, you understand that. Yep, so yep. it's not as though it has no use. But we in the pharmaceutical industry, meaning that we have, as Americans, have found drugs in the past that gave us some possible pleasure, got diverted and caused big problems. So it happened in the 60s with Valium. Valium became way overused. All the benzodiazepines, there was a marketplace for them. Methamphetamines, uh, stimulants became diet clinics, uh, which were abused and doctors were giving out like there was no tomorrow. Uh, The uh, people uh, might uh, remember that, you know, after Xanax came out, it also became one of the most highly abused uh, drugs. OxyContin certainly did. And at a certain point, Quaaludes, uh, which were big in the 1970s, was a legitimate drug, sort of as a barbiturate, and then it was finally banned entirely because it was diverted to use so much. So part of the history of this is a drug comes out that has a legitimate purpose, especially when it comes to the narcotics, like the controlled substances, the opioids. It, the patients use it, and they, and then sometimes it will get overprescribed because companies get greedy or doctors are overprescribing it and they get greedy. Nobody's watching it at the FDA. And then once that happens, it can be diverted to the illegal market. The, the problem with fentanyl that puts it on steroids is that it can be done in a lab. Mm-hmm. So that with some previous drugs, it was hard to make, let's say, the equivalent of Xanax um, or Valium in a makeshift lab because you didn't really have the process for being able to understand how to do it. There wasn't a market for, you know, knockoffs of benzodiazepines. You either got the Valium or you didn't, or you got the Xanax or you didn't. Now, of course, with fentanyl, you know, you get an overdose with fentanyl, you're not quite sure at the state level or the government level whether it was illegal fentanyl that was manufactured with precursor chemicals from China and put together in a lab in Colorado or in Mexico or whether it was legal fentanyl that was diverted from a hospital and ended up being used. And that's a real problem. Is there any, can you give us our uh, uh, latest update on 
opioids and, um, and, you know, the classic, you know, opioid, that, you know, the Sackler world and then the lawsuits and the, yeah. you know, what, where is it? Are you pleased with what's happened? Are you frustrated? What, I mean, like you said, it's kind of taken the back seat, you know, it feels like, oh, we, we dealt with that, right? They got sued. They went bankrupt, if you will. That's what the, you know, that's what they say. Do you mind? Because I think it still continues, Gerald, to help us understand this industry and the underbelly of this. I can appreciate the fact that for a small group of people, these can have some benefits. I think we all can appreciate that concept, right? However, like you're yeah. saying, the abuses far outweigh often that small yeah. group. So where's this landed? Yeah. It landed, I mean, the Sackler family owned Purdue Pharma and had OxyContin. They contributed billions and billions of dollars to a final settlement of all of the lawsuit and litigation against them. Uh, they walk away with several billion dollars still in profits from their OxyContin sales. And uh, their reputation is ruined, but they are still free. Nobody's going to bring a, 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 a you know a criminal prosecution against them. It's possible, but there isn't one underway. That's, I think they essentially got away with it. They they paid a price in terms of money, but they got away with it. And if you're talking about fentanyl, uh, some of your you know listeners will remember there was a product Actique, a company had a fentanyl lollipop. Uh, it had all types of restrictions on it for, to try to keep it. From being abused and still became uh, illegally available everywhere. Uh, there were lawsuits filed over that, and eventually, uh, the people who were involved in the sales of that and the owners of that company uh, actually did get indicted and mm -hmm. uh, had problems with uh, going to jail. And in that case, um, it's one of the rare cases in which pharmaceutical executives paid the price of uh, prison as opposed to just paying it with by writing a check. Well, um, Gerald, we have uh, been thankful for just giving us a, a, an education today on some of the history and, the, and and what's going on here with fentanyl. So we can do the best that we can. I think you, even though you said you don't have the solution, um, I think just opening our eyes to, to, you know, the solution, I mean, how to fix it, opening our eyes to how accessible this stuff is to being aware of, you know, for our kids. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say one last thing. And, you know, I know that some people will say the the solution, and we could have another discussion on this another time yeah. in the future, is harm reduction, you know, opening up centers where people are able to to uh, safely inject drugs as opposed to, but, and I don't know necessarily, I've always been skeptical of that. Mm -hmm. Some harm reduction centers in California uh, and New York are now supplying strips in which your drug can be tested to see if it has fentanyl in it. So if somebody has bought heroin, and they want to make sure before they inject it that it doesn't have fentanyl because they're worried about that, which is sometimes mixed in. They can actually test the product before shooting it. I don't know if I necessarily want that to be <laughs> yeah. the, the, the standard, the standard of, of care. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, well, I guess for those of you that are currently <laughs> injecting a lot of drugs, Gerald has given us a tip there. Yeah, but the real <laughs> audience listening to the show, can we address them? Gerald, real quick, do you have something for you know parents out there or something some further resources that they can go and oh. read up and just be aware of some things what do you recommend for something like that the uh, uh, the the only thing that um I, I i say this is like my uh my bottom line on this for parents out there yes you can if you, you just look up fentanyl you're going to come across the cdc and the dea advice right off the start but here's the the only the word the DEA's campaign line, normally I'm not a big supporter of the DEA. I know that they have some problems, but their line on fentanyl is one pill can kill. That's true. But the unofficial second line is one use can kill. And as a parent, you just have to try to get that across to your kids. Hard to do. 
I understand that. But that even if they think they're staying away from fentanyl, even if they think they're buying a drug, including just marijuana, they're getting some cannabis, they, they can't be certain today. And we're going to hear more about these stories down the road. So my advice is one use can kill. It's like Russian roulette. It's just not worth taking. And for parents, I hope that they can sort of get that through in some way to their kids. Gerald, and I, I know you got to jump, but you just triggered something. I want Is there a maliciousness behind this? Because here's what I was just thought about. If I'm a drug dealer and I'm selling this illegal stuff and I'm killing the people that are buying it, that seems to be anti my business model. Is there a is there just a, a dark I mean are these people are people trying to the, kill yeah. people? Forgive me for yeah, just no, throwing that so, out there. So I did look so I did look into that as much as possible and I and I haven't done a scientific study in okay. which I've talked to a hundred drug dealers, right, who have done this. <laughs> but my feeling is, from what I gather, I don't think they're actually trying to kill their customers. That's not usually a good business model, yeah. right, to say, okay, I'm going to give you a product and it'll kill you. They're trying to make products that otherwise aren't addictive, addictive. So they think mm. they, these are not necessarily chemists or doctors. Uh, and and they, they think they're able to make the fentanyl. And if they add a little bit of fentanyl to cannabis, so they put a little bit of fentanyl into um, a party drug, or they put a little bit of fentanyl into cocaine, that because it is such an addictive product, that maybe you'll start okay. using that drug more often because you develop a physical addiction to it. Well, that's really... You know, to me, yeah. a, a, a very craven and, and, you know, sort of terrible thing. But what they do is they miscalculate sometimes and too much fentanyl in that given product then can kill somebody. So they're not trying to do it. I don't think it's that type of where they're poisoning their customers. They're trying to actually addict them. But it's such a fine line. It's such a powerful drug that they sometimes get it wrong. Man, fascinating, Gerald. We love having you. I hope you're doing well. Excited yeah. for your your show uh, on Showtime. Thank you for letting us uh, release that yeah, information. Thanks, uh, and, I'm sorry I don't have more uplifting news for you, but uh, <laughs> at least. Uh, <laughs> well, sometimes we we'll have to sound the alarms. And looking forward to yeah. uh, your next work on uh, with cancer and just continued health and healing for your family. Take care, Gerald. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks, Doctor Ben. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.